Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you today. So, it's, it's, I, I shared this in the first service, but I have great fondness for, for Trinity Press and, and especially the elders. I had the distinct privilege to work alongside the elders for the past couple of years as we are members of the temporary provision, uh, provisional session for Christchurch Mankato. And, and just the, the time and the effort that the, that the elders put in for a church that's not even their own. I'm like, the fact that they, they're willing to do that, you know, I can't imagine just the time and effort that they must put into the care and the shepherding for, for their own church. And so it's been a blessing to, to work alongside them, not just along in, in the provisional session, but also in presbytery. And it's always a blessing to, to interact with them and to, and to fellowship with them. And it's a pleasure to be here with all of you as we close out the Global Outreach Conference. And so normally, you know, I'm, I'm used to, whenever I'm in uniform, I, I'm used to doing 30-minute services and like 10-minute sermons. Unfortunately, I'm not going to do a 10-minute sermon. So if you, all of you were expecting a short sermon, you know, this is a, we're, we're a PCA church, so we're not going to, we don't know what a short sermon is. So, you know, it's the, so but nonetheless, we're going to be looking at Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 23. So if you could turn your Bibles to... To Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1, uh, 1 through 23, I think it's pages 656 to 657 in your bread Bibles and in your, pew, in your seats. Hear now the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired in that word. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconia and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters." Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I do not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Because you have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. 
Thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David, and concerning all the people who dwell in the city, your kinsmen who did not go out with you into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence, and will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them, because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord, that I persistently, persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But you would not listen, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Kaliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Messiah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah and Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire, because they have done an outrageous thing in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbors' wives, and they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. I am the one who knows, and I am witness, declares the Lord. Amen. This is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired, and errant word. Thanks be to God. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, I pray that as we take a look at this passage a little more closely. I know many of us, maybe we're familiar with this passage, and maybe some of us, we've taken great comfort from this passage, especially in verse 11, but how you have a plan for us. But oftentimes, maybe, and we've used that verse to, to keep us going, and when situations have been difficult, so maybe some of us are a little surprised that the, the passages of judgment that sandwich that passage of hope and promise that we're so used to. But I pray that we would have this opportunity to understand that you are not a God of doom and gloom and dread only, but you are a God of hope. You are a God of faithfulness. You are a loving and kind and merciful God. Not because we deserve it or have earned it, but because in your everlasting mercy, you decided to send Christ to live the life that we should have lived and to die to death that we should have died. So I pray that even in this passage, even when it seems like Christ is nowhere, that, that his glories and excellencies be made clear to your people today. That they will be encouraged, they be rebuked if necessary, that they be willing to turn back to you. But nonetheless, would we be reminded of your faithfulness? Would we be reminded of your glory? and loving kindness. Thank you, and pray all these things in my name is Jesus. Amen. If you've been a Christian for a minute, perhaps you've heard of the story of John Harper, the famous Scottish missionary who was called to be the pastor at Moody Church in Moody, Chicago, after Dwight Moody, the, the famous 19th century Christian. And how he was called to, to be the, the senior pastor of that church. He was well-renowned for his evangelical abilities, and also probably because he was Scottish and he has the, the cool Scottish accent. I'm sure it made his preaching and evangelism a lot better. And, you know, because if you say something with a Scottish accent, it, I'm sure it sounds even more debonair and suave. So 
He was on the Titanic, the SMS Titanic, on its maiden voyage when it was making its way to America. And as all of you know, what happened to the Titanic, he was there. He was traveling with his six-year-old daughter, and he was widowed at the time. And he, instead of, you know, I look at that situation and I consider myself, you know what, I probably wouldn't do what he did, but I would probably take care of my daughters first. But in his passion for, for lost souls, he gave his daughter to another woman near him. He said, take care of my daughter because I'm going to go out and preach to those dying souls. I'm going to do whatever I can to bring those souls to Christ before they, they meet him in Judgment Day. And so he goes to those souls, those people dying and drowning in the Atlantic Ocean. Some people once, twice, three times, pleading with them to turn to the Lord. And ultimately, he passes away. He drowns, preaching Christ to repent, to turn back to the Lord. Years later, there will be a reunion for survivors of the Titanic. And at that reunion, there was a man who shared that he remembers John Harper and his efforts to try to, to preach to him because he remembers John Harper coming to him once and him saying, no, I'm not going to turn to Christ. Then John Harper comes again a second time, and he finally says, okay, I will, I will believe in Christ. And the man declared that he was John Harper's last convert on this earth, on this side of heaven. Now, the reason why I share this story with all of you is not because I'm trying to guilt trip all of you. To be so radical, to be so reckless in your faith and witness like John Harper to the point where we're going to be mobilizing and sending teams to evangelize in the streets of downtown Rochester like right now. I'm sharing the story not because I'm trying to encapsulate his example as what is true faithfulness. Right? Oftentimes we hear stories like that of John Harper and his example, and rather than being inspired, rather than being equipped to go and do likewise, what ends up happening is that we start to feel a little bit inadequate, a little bit inferior. This leads us to observe and admire from afar the work and experiences of other more faithful and more passionate Christians who are on the front lines of ministry. And we live vicariously through them. And we're inspired by their stories because we think to ourselves, there's no way that I can do that, and so I'm going to live by their example. I'm going to live by their work. And my hope is that all of you will leave here today not feeling intimidated to be more proactive in your faith because you feel inadequate and inferior compared to those on the front lines of ministry. As as a chaplain in the Minnesota Army National Guard, and as some of you were here yesterday and earlier today, you know, hearing the stories of what chaplains, what we, uh, the opportunities we have to minister, and sometimes the, the crises that we find ourselves in, it can be very overwhelming. And so it's easy for us to fall into that, that mindset, that attitude of, I can't do that, so I'm just going to let them do that. I'm just going to stay here and just kind of cheer them on. And we feel intimidated, inadequate, inferior because we don't think we have what it takes or we think that we're not going to be as successful as those who are in chapel ministry or ministries similar to that. And so what I want to do is 
to encourage all of you to not think that way. And I think this passage in Jeremiah does that for us. As we close this weekend, focused on missions and the specific ministry that's seen within chaplaincy, the ministry of presence. I thought it very appropriate to preach from the book of Jeremiah, whose very ministry can essentially be encapsulated as that of a chaplain. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with Jeremiah and his ministry, he's basically known as the weeping prophet because for three years he cried out to the people of God, calling on them to repent, to turn back to the Lord, to not disobey him anymore. Desperate for his fellow Israelites to not suffer the fate and the consequences of their rebellion. He preached, he was present, he did all that he could. But unfortunately, nothing happened. The Israelites, they remained stubborn. They did what they wanted to do. They did what was right according to their eyes. And not according to what was right according to God's eyes. And so by the metrics of the world... Jeremiah will be considered an absolute failure. No fruit, nothing whatsoever. But by the metrics of God, he was considered faithful. And so the main thing I want all of you to hopefully see from this passage is that we can be present in the life of others because God is present with us. That faithfulness is not a matter of metrics that the, that the world goes by, but that faithfulness is simply obeying and listening to God. And we're going to do this in three points, like a good reform sermon. Right. So as you see in your outlines on page eight, discerning between conflicting messages, dealing with a consumer mentality, and devoted to completing the mission. And so the first point, discerning between conflicting messages. So in verses one through three, we learn that Jeremiah, and he's, he's in Jerusalem, and he's preaching. He's trying to reach out to the people of Israel in Babylon. Because apparently in Babylon, there's another prophet, Shemaiah, who is telling the Israelites, don't worry about the exile, don't worry about the predicament we find ourselves in, because guess what? We're all going to go home soon. You don't need to worry so much, because we're going to be leaving soon. So just sit tight for just a little bit longer, but we're going to go home soon. Whereas Jeremiah, he's not saying we're gonna, you, know, you guys are going to go home soon. He's saying you're going to be there for a while, 70 years. So better get comfortable. So you got one prophet saying we're going to leave soon. Sit tight. So you don't even need to unpack your bags because we're going to be leaving soon. You got another prophet saying you better settle in for the long haul because you're going to be there for 70 years. And so right off the bat, we see that there's two prophets who claim to know the Lord, but with two conflicting messages. How do we know who has the right message? How do we know who's the true prophet of the true Lord and who's pretending? You know, as an army chaplain, one of my responsibilities is to assess and to improve the morale of the soldiers in my unit. And to do so, my, one of the ways in which I'm able to do that is my battalion commander gives me free reign. Uh, pretty much all the, the privileges that can be afforded to a chaplain. He trusts me and he allows me to just really speak into the life of not just soldiers, but also the various command teams and the officers 
at our staff meetings. And at our most recent staff meeting a couple of weeks ago, the events that occurred in Israel just transpired. And so I knew that a lot of soldiers were probably wondering, okay, are we going to go there? Because we're an infantry battalion. And so are we going to go there? Are we slotted to be the next unit that's to be called up? Because it's part of our rotation. We're getting there in our cycle to, you know, maybe we'll get called up. Who knows? Soldiers are probably asking, are we for this war? Are we for Israel? Are we for Palestine? Like, what's going on here? Maybe that's something that all of you are probably wondering about as well. Maybe some of you are debating, okay, who's right in this? There's layers and layers of issues that we need to peel back, sociological, economical, religion, of who is right, who is wrong in this, in this issue and conflict. So how do we know who's right? And, I was, and in that moment, the Lord led me to Joshua 5, 13 to 14, where Joshua is standing on the banks of the Jordan River, about ready to fight the Canaanites. And in that moment, the angel of the Lord, right, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, appears. Joshua asks, are you for us or are you against us? And the angel of the Lord says, no. Right, completely catching Joshua off guard because what the angel of the Lord is saying, he's not for you, he's not against you. He's simply for the Lord. So what I try to impress upon the staff and the command teams and the various soldiers is that rather than trying to focus on who's right, who's wrong, what tribe you're a part of, what ideology you're, you're, you follow, what politics that you agree with, to focus on the Lord. Focus on your own convictions. Focus on what you believe in. Focus on what the Lord has revealed in his written word, especially, right? We talked about that earlier, about how the importance of sola scriptura. Is God's word and, his, and is God the final authority in your life? Or are you going to be ruled by feelings, by emotions, by tribes, by the, the group think that you may be a part of? Are you willing to go against your tribe? your politics, your tradition, your culture, your group, for the sake of the Lord. You know, the, first, the fourth century church father, Athanasius, once said, if the world is against the truth, I am against the world. Now, this is really important for us to keep in mind because we need to remember that the church is not something we make and form because we desire a supportive community that shares the same vocations, the same affinities, the same passions, or to function as our emotional support group, or as a local community center. The church is not a staging ground for social justice and activism, but on the other end of that, the church is not a refuge from wokeness and critical theory or a political haven. The church is Christ's bride that he is building, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against her, as, Ma as Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, 18. So our loyalty and devotion must not be to a specific tribe or cause or interest or culture or to a group, but to God. Even if it will cost us our reputation, even if it will cost us promotions and other opportunities to advance in the world, relationships with friends, family, peers, clients, employees, and in extreme cases, costing us our lives. 
I'm currently serving as a youth pastor at a local Korean immigrant church in Shoreview. And it's a Napark church, and the, the church is associated with the Koshin denomination. And so I was specifically wanting us as a family to worship there after I left my previous pastoral ministry position because of the legacy that the denomination is well known for, at least amongst Korean Presbyterian circles. So if you're not familiar with, with the Koshin denomination, ultimately the in 19, when Japan occupied Korea from 1907 to 1945, they forced all churches and all pastors to bow down to the emperor before every service. If you do not bow down to the emperor and proclaim him as a true and living God, that there will be severe consequences. So as you can imagine, a lot of pastors, a lot of churches, a lot of Christians, they, they caved in. They said, okay, we would rather not suffer and deal with the consequences. We'll kind of give in to the demand of the Japanese Empire rather than deal with, with the persecution that follows. But in the midst of all that, there were three denominations that refused to bend the knee. Koshin denomination, and a couple of other smaller denominations that refused to bow down to the emperor and his demands. And as a result, many, many Christians, unfortunately, were, were martyred, persecuted, and, and suffered greatly. But in that moment, where they could have gone with the tribe, you know, gone with the, the group think of, you know what, we need to, you know, we need to kind of pick our battles of when to lose and win when we need to just kind of give in, they decided to stand firm. They decided that loyalty to God was more important than anything else. So priority to God, loyalty to God over any loyalty to any tribe, culture, or group think, or ideology, or zeitgeist. And I share that with the youth that, that I'm currently pastoring as a, as a way to encourage them to take ownership of their faith, for them to understand the legacy in which upon they stand upon, their forebearers. And because I'm a youth pastor currently as well, I want to also kind of give a brief charge to the youth here that I want, I want to encourage and challenge all of you to make sure you're taking ownership of your faith. Because I know that you know, I've been there, I've been in your shoes as well. I went to church because my parents forced me to go to church. Not because I necessarily want to be there, but I found a way to make, just stomach it because I was able to play, play with my friends. But while you're here, I want to encourage you to take ownership of your faith. Know what you believe in. Don't go with what the culture says. Don't go with what your friends say. Don't follow a tribe. Don't follow a culture. Don't follow a group. Don't follow what your friends say because that's a cool thing and you want, you'd want to be rejected by your friends. But, but follow God. Follow his word. Prioritize what his word says. Don't follow a tribe or a group or a culture, even if it seems like they got everything correct. But to follow God, be loyal to him, first and foremost, and not to a specific tribe, not to an ideology or interest or cause, or to comfort, convenience, community, and consumerism. This leads us to the second point, dealing with the consumer mentality. Now here in verses 4 to 14, the, the, the one verse that really stands out is verse 11. But what I want to point out here is that God's not rewarding bad behavior and giving the people of God justification to enjoy the pleasures of life for the sake of the prosperity and growth of that city. 
Rather, he is preparing them for war. So verse 11, again, it's a promise verse for many Christians. For some of you, it might be a promise verse. Maybe Jeremiah 29, 11 was a great anchor in, uh, during a, a difficult season in your lives. And you hold on to it. Maybe some of you have a plaque of it in your home. Or maybe tattooed, like on your body somewhere. I don't know. After all, it's great to hear. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Like, who doesn't want to hear that? But it's crucial to make sure we're reading this verse in its proper context. Because after all, how many of us would think that God's plan is wonderful when we read the verse before verse, in verse 11 and verse 10, where God says, guess what, you're going to be in exile for 70 years. You're going to leave your home, you're going to leave everyone you know, everyone you love, you're going to be in a different location. And guess what, you're going to stay there for 70 years. Is God's plan so wonderful now? And furthermore, it must have been demoralizing for these Israelites to see that they were reminded right away in verse 4 that they're in exile because of their sin, but guess what? God also ultimately sends them into exile. So it's not, so it's not just because of their sin, but God made sure that his will was accomplished by sending them into exile. So it completely deflates that, that tendency to be a consumer, to the tendency to think that I can just kind of enjoy life while on this business trip, basically. And this verse is also addressed to the community of Israel. So God has a plan, a plan for you, that you is not singular, that you is plural. So it's not God has a wonderful plan for you, but God has a wonderful plan for y'all. So to interpret this verse individualistically, as so many people do, is illegitimate and unfaithful to the text. One commentator goes so far as to comment that the way the normal Christian claims this verse as their life verse, without knowing its proper context, is a perfect illustration of how Christians have been seduced by a narcissistic culture. So the Lord puts in that guardrail right away in verse 4, telling them, guess what, I sent you into exile. So don't think that you can just indulge in all of life's joys and, and pleasantries. He puts a garden guardrail in right away to make sure his people do not fall into that tendency, that temptation to just be consumers, because he's telling his people to be ready for war. Again, at first glance, right, Jeremiah's message from the Lord seems like a 70-year work trip with benefits. Build houses, plant gardens, get married, settle in for the long haul, and suck it up. Right? That may have led many Israelites to conclude that you know God is just kind of letting, just letting them let like just loose, like a child, in like the world's largest candy store in Jordan on you know 169 South. If you've ever been there, if you know, you know. Right? But if we understand this text in light of Deuteronomy 20. We see that God is actually telling the Israelites to build houses, plant gardens, and enjoy married life for a bit because they will be going to war. Because in Deuteronomy 20, you don't need to turn there, I'll just read it for us. But in Deuteronomy 20, where it talks about God's laws of warfare, it says this in verses 5 through 7. So then the officer shall speak to the people saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? 
Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. So build houses, plant vineyards, get married. Not because God is trying to just allow you to indulge in, in life's joys, but because enjoy as much as you can because things are about to pop off. Because he's going to be, so once you come back from exile, there's going to be judgment. There's going to be wrath. There's going to be a lot of work to be done. There's going to be the building of the, the temple, building of the wall. There's all these things that need to be taken care of. You know, looking at this from a military lens, this is actually pretty, a pretty generous offer by God. Because in the military, you're not even allowed to, you know, basically, the running joke in the military is that if the military wanted you to have a wife, it would have issued you a wife. And so the fact that God is saying, you could get married. It's like God is very generous. He's more generous than the U.S. government. And so he's encouraging his people to make sure that they understand what they're getting themselves into. Because return from exile doesn't mean that God's people can just be passive observers and sit on the sidelines. But the reality is that there is work to be done. And God's people must be ready to get in the game. Because in the same way that the Israelites were exiled from the Holy Land due to their sin and rebellion, Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden due to their sin and rebellion. And because Adam and Eve were exiled, we, being descendants of Adam and Eve, we were exiled as well from the presence of God. But in the first coming of Christ, he not only dies and defeats the enemies of sin, death, and Satan, but he also brings us back from exile and into the presence of God. So in other words, we are not saved just propositionally, verbally declared, but we are saved actually, positionally. So we're saved and we're redeemed, not just so that we can get into heaven, but that God has a specific purpose, even in the midst of exile, that he is getting us ready for us to take part in his mission, to take part in his work. And this leads us to the last point, devoted to completing the mission. And so up to this point, I want all of us to see that, that God is moving, that God is doing things, that he is not just simply telling people where to go and do things just because he's God, but that his commands follow his actions. In other words, if you're, you know, if you're familiar with the indicative imperative, that God does what he needs to do. He acts first, and his actions, his work, is the catalyst for our response to him. That everything that God commands us to do is in response to his grace, to his actions. And so we see that God is saying that he is going to continue to work, that he will execute and enforce true justice in verses 15 to 23. He's going to execute and enforce justice either through his people or through someone else. Because the people of God, they were supposed to enforce and execute God's justice through the law of God. We read Matthew 5 earlier as part of our scripture reading and how we need to know God's law and not just know it, but also to do it, to be not knowers of the law, but also doers of the law. 
There was rampant corruption in the leadership of Israel, as we see in verses 22 to 23. False prophets, leaders taking other people's wives. And God had made provision in his law for his people to enforce judgment and justice on his behalf. Right? False prophets, even there's a specific clause in Deuteronomy 18.20 that if there's a false prophet, to kill him. And yet, the Israelites, they don't do anything. The people of God were not doing what they were supposed to do and were not giving a faithful witness of the Lord whom they claimed to worship. And so, brothers and sisters, what I want to encourage you and challenge you to do is, again, I know up to this point it might seem very burdensome with this sense of responsibility and duty. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, that the good news is this, that God places this responsibility and burden on us, not because he's trying to tell us that we need to perform like dancing monkeys to, uh, to gain his affection, but in response to what he's already done. So God has already acted. God has given us the redemption. God has given us the salvation. God has acted. God has accomplished what he needs to accomplish. What he's calling us to do is to respond accordingly. To remember that he is who he says he is. That our job is not to perform. Our job is not to get results that we think that we need to get. But our job is to simply be faithful in the trenches with those around us. Family, friends, co-workers, classmates, peers, our direct reports, sometimes even our bosses. That we are called to be present in the life of others. That chaplain ministry, the ministry of presence is not just reserved for, for only a select few, but that that's something that even every, every Christian can do to be present in the life of others. And so when we see someone in a difficult situation, right, we, we want to help in some ways. We want to offer something substantive. We want to say some words of encouragement. Maybe, some, maybe we want to get more involved. And we might not see results for a long time. We might never see results. But the point is not to get results. Right? But the point is to be faithful. All we need to do is to be present and willing and know that God is still working and moving. Because we see here that God says, you guys didn't do what you were supposed to do, so I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands. So God's going to get his work done some way. The question is whether we're going to be willing to, to be a part of that. You know, one of the reasons why I chose to be an Army chaplain, not an Air Force chaplain, is because the, the way in which Army chaplains conduct themselves on the field. And so Army chaplains, we, we go to the soldiers. Right? We bring God to soldiers and soldiers to God. Air Force chaplains, it's more of a you know, guard the chapel kind of ministry. So there are times when I'm rucking out there, you know, it's cold, it's freezing. I have a 60-pound you know, ruck on my, on my back. My feet are killing me. I'm on mile 10 and mile 12. My, my, my uniform is drenched in sweat. I'm like, I should have been an Air Force chaplain. All right? Yep. You know, that's my, you know, depravity, you know, in, in me and, you know, my, my unfinished, you know, self speaking. But at the same time, I'm reminded that this is what Christ does, that Christ incarnates himself. He comes down to where we are and doesn't force us to go to where he is. And so 
it's important for us to keep that in mind when we try to engage others and when we want to get involved in the life of others, when we want to be present in the life of others. Because one thing that I still remember to this day that my chaplain instructor taught us is making sure that your presence boosts morale and doesn't sink it. Because there are chaplains, army chaplains, who have been so absent, who have so neglected visiting the soldiers that when they show up, they're not a chaplain of life. They're not, their presence doesn't communicate joy and comfort, but their presence communicates dread and grief and worry and concern because everyone's thinking, oh, 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 like the chaplain's here. Did someone die or, or is someone in trouble? Because the chaplain never shows up, and so the chaplain's here, so something must be wrong. And so taking that kind of mindset and applying it to all of you in your lives, what I want to have all of you consider is in your various spheres of influence, such as family, vocation, school, does your presence communicate life? Does your presence communicate joy and comfort? Or does your presence communicate anxiety, nervousness, doom and gloom. When you come home from work, is your family relieved to see you? Or are they getting ready to be your punching bags on whom you need to vent? When you're at work, are your direct reports and peers relaxed when they see you? Or are they frustrated because they know they need to pick up the slack because you're not, you're not doing your job properly or willingly or they're nervous and anxious because they're worried that you're going to put them on a PIP. When you're at school, are your friends, classmates, teachers genuinely excited to see you? Or do they secretly resent you and they're pretending to like you? And so in these moments, it can be very difficult for us to find the stability and the anchor to stand upon to try to even communicate a presence of comfort and joy. And it is in these moments where I, where I want to encourage you and remind you that when we do grow weary, when we do get lost in the commotion and the, the chaos, the conflicts, the confusion, that we can look to Christ because he is the greater Jeremiah. That our union with him reminds us that, that Christ also walked down this path. Because like Jeremiah, Jesus' ministry was three years. Like Jeremiah, Jesus spoke to a people who may have not been in physical exile, but they were definitely in spiritual exile. Like Jeremiah, Jesus stood in the gap to minister to a stubborn people who caused much grief, frustration, and sorrow, and to people who eventually crucified him. Like Jeremiah, Jesus was faithful in the face of faithlessness. But unlike Jeremiah... Jesus continues to minister to this day. That we see much fruit having been born from the ministry of Jesus, from his prophetic ministry, from his priestly ministry, and even from his kingly ministry. That we are able to stand and to be present to those around us because Christ continues to be present with us. And so both for those of you who do claim Christ as your Lord and Savior, would his presence continue to be one of encouragement, one of joy, one of relief. And to those of you who are still seeking, maybe you're, you're living in unrepentance or you're just caught up in the life of sin and you just don't, it doesn't seem like you have a way out. 
would his presence not be one of doom and gloom, not be one of dread and misery and fear, but would his presence, even in this moment today, communicate invitation, compassion, and mercy, that you can still come to the Lord because he still invites you today, that his presence is not one that you need to run away from or fear anymore. But his presence is one that he gladly invites you to come and draw near to him. And that you can know the true and living God if that is your situation today. But, other, but brothers and sisters, let us continue to enjoy the presence that we have in Christ. Not because of our performance, not because of our, the results that we produce. But by the person, life, and work of Jesus Christ, the greater Jeremiah. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we have an audience with you, not because we earned it, but because we stand in the righteousness and blood of Jesus Christ. We are united to him, and we are able to, to go forth, not because we are so awesome and because we are so strong and smart and intelligent and accomplished, but because Christ gives us the grace to continue to move forward because the same grace that saves us also trains us as Titus 2.12 reminds us so would you be with my brothers and sisters that they would not be intimidated by the calling that you have for them that they would not settle for just kind of letting others go forth that they would not have to you know, life is always going to happen. There's always going to be things that pop up. And I pray that in the midst of all of that, that they would be able to anchor themselves and prioritize and give loyalty to you above all else. And that you give them the opportunities to be present in the lives of others. That they don't have to try to fix everything. That they can just simply be there. So would you stretch the bandwidth and the capacities for them to be able to do so, to minister to those around them, near them, and that they would continue to be faithful witnesses to, to the city of Rochester, to the state of Minnesota, to this country, and the world beyond. Thank you, and I pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.